What is the gradient app? It's where it takes your face and then it gradients it to a famous person. Kind of like those Animorphs books, but with yes. <laughs> your face. Okay, I put my headphones on and heard just like those Animorphs oh my books. Gosh. Now, so many questions. Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. All right, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. In addition to what we are feeling this week, we are talking about Todd Phillips' new standalone comic book movie, Joker. But before we get into all that, I've got a few guests with me today. So let's go ahead and introduce yourselves and answer the question, what comic book character do you think could have the best standalone story? Hi, my name is Ben Weaver. I'm a filmmaker in Austin, Texas. Uh, and the comic book character that I think would have the best standalone story really says a lot about my participation with comic books. And my selection would be Knives Chow from Scott Pilgrim. Uh, Knives Ooh. Chow is the... Uh, 17-year-old girlfriend, then ex-girlfriend of Scott Pilgrim. I think that she is probably best suited because the comic book slash movie where Michael Sarah plays Scott Pilgrim and Ellen Wong plays Knives Chow is essentially her origin story. Um, I think it sets her up for a life of rock and roll, like running around the globe, of battling, of fighting, and becoming this independent woman who figures out what she wants and she defeats evil along the way. So that's my choice for best standalone comic book character. Yeah, that's a good answer. Thank you. I, I feel <laughs> inadequate now. No, I truly, I don't know very much about comic books. So I was like, I need to reach into my vault and figure out which ones I do know things about that haven't been made. So Love it. Uh, my name is Josh Tumblin. I'm a stage director and acting coach in Seattle, Washington. And I want to see a standalone story of a comic book that I love called Cowboy Ninja Viking, um, which actually has been in development hell for like six years now. Cowboy Ninja Viking is about this like uh, government experiment on people with dissociative identity disorder where they train their different personalities to be different archetypes of like mass like uh, warrior kind of people and then send them on like Jason Bourne style missions. Oh, wow. That is intense. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So the title character, his one identity is a cowboy. One is a ninja. One is a Viking. So it's like, if That's we, awesome. it's like fight club. If we got, if like Edward Norton knew that Tyler Durden was a part of him and was like, okay, you can go do that. Yeah. And then it, also if there were like 10 other people who also were like that. Oh, okay. So it's like a comic book, United States of Terra. I love this. Yeah. It is kind of like that. Awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, well, I'm Lucas Wright, a designer in Chicago and I, this has already been made into a comic book movie, but I would be interested in a better one. Um, John Constantine is a, <laughs> Uh, like a British, like working class, like uh, warlock detective, uh, con man person who I think doesn't fit well with a, most of the superhero universes that are out there and with other superheroes in general. But I think he is super interesting. And I didn't love the 2005 film. I think it's 2005 um, with, Ke with Keanu Reeves, which is this is a bad year to say you didn't like a Keanu movie. But um, overall, I think he would make a very interesting standalone film. 
I, I love those comics. The Hellblazer series has always been one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'd be down for that. Well, every episode, we like to talk about something we've either, either discovered or rediscovered throughout the week. So we'll start with Josh. Josh, tell us what you're feeling this week. Uh, this week, I am feeling the works of Terry Pratchett, <laughs> uh, specifically the Discworld series, but everything he ever did basically is perfect. Um, for those of you who don't know, Terry Pratchett was a sci-fi fantasy author. Um, he died fairly recently, about four years ago, I think, of complications from Alzheimer's. Um, but he wrote like 50 some odd books, um, most of them taking place in the Discworld series. Uh, if you ever read Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide for the Galaxy, it's like that, but for fantasy tropes. So like Lord of the Rings style um, magic and knights and warriors and that kind of thing, but just off the rails goofy. There's 41 <laughs> books in that series. Uh, and the great Whoa. thing about it is that only one of them is a sequel, I think. Oh, really? So, like, they all take place, and there's technically an order, but he didn't write them in it, and they don't really connect other than having the same characters. So you can read them in whatever order you want. Um, specifically, I recommend Reaper Man, because I think it's his best um, as an introduction. It's a really good introduction to the series, but it's just, it's some of the funniest stuff I've ever read. I have to be careful reading those books, because I'll I'll lose an entire weekend. <laughs> so wait, That's Josh, awesome. Have you read all 41 of the books in the series? No, I'm about halfway done. I have I had this problem where I really like some of them, so I read them several times. Mm. So I, just, I haven't finished yet, but I, they're so good, all of them. I've never read one that I didn't like. I've always been interested in starting that series, but again, the 41 book thing has always been a little bit intimidating to jump into. For sure. <laughs> Especially as someone who likes to, like, finish series so this so knowing that they're not as connected as i as i thought they were um it's helpful definitely well and the good news is there will never be more uh part of the stipulations that will <laughs> is that no one can complete the series he had like four or yeah. five books he was working on and they ran over his hard drive with a steamroller uh, Whoa. That's specifically great. because he asked that's them great. to, so no one could finish I his work. I love that. <laughs> that's incredible. He's like, this is finite. This is done. It's the I love coolest that. thing ever. Yeah, I love it. That's fantastic. Well, Ben, what are you feeling this week? So this week, uh, I am recently getting over a cold, and I spent yesterday in bed trying to get over that, and that time I spent listening to Ronan Farrow's new book, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and the Conspiracy to Protect Predators. Uh, this book, it just came out and it is about, it's the backstory behind Ronan Farrow's Pulitzer Prize winning piece, uh, expose reporting on Harvey Weinstein and the, uh, sexual allegations behind his whole entire career. Uh, the book is really interesting. It's so fun to read. It reads like a thriller. He reads like, uh, like a private eye with bad guys coming after him tailing him always looking over his shoulder talking to witnesses who are scared to come forward but have a powerful story um in the middle of it he also talks about his relationship with john lovett which he referring lovingly refers to as jonathan the whole time which is unbelievably endearing <laughs> and it is such an incredible book it's such an important book and it not only covers the whole process of reporting on the wine scene story the years that that took but it also then covers uh nbc's involvement and then some of their top talent that also came down as a result it's fascinating it's super of the moment and uh i would recommend everyone to read it uh also i would recommend people to listen to it because there's been some uh some chatter online about 
Ronan Farrow's interesting choices that he's made. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. his voices. <laughs> yeah, he specifically chose to uh, instead of either reading other characters uh, in normal voices or hiring actors, he chose to do the voices of Russians and French people and all these different uh, ethnicities in his own voice. Uh, and it's wild. Uh, it's very interesting. I, I can only speculate as to the reasons why he chose to do that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he wanted, didn't want anybody to know and didn't want to have to have NDAs. I don't know, but, uh, it's a fantastic read. I'd give you, I'd recommend everybody to go check it out. If you're a reader, do that. If you're a listener, go listen to it. I have heard some of the clips, um, of him impersonating these people and it is very, very funny. And yeah. like, it, it sounds like an amateur, um, impressionist. Like it's very, very hilarious, but I'm, I'm very excited about the book. I'm, I'm excited to actually re- read the book, but listening to him do these voices are very funny. Yeah. I'm yeah. also really excited about it. It's, it's funny that as I haven't heard the clips yet, you say he sounds amateurish cause he, he's done voice work. He was in the English uh, language version of the wind rises. Oh, I really? that. Yeah. So, so I wonder if that's what made him decide to do that. If he was like, well, I've kind of done this before, so let's do it. Wow. Possibly. He, he might have done received pronunciation, but he does, I think, what does he do? He does Scottish in here. He does um, Russian. It's, it's rough. Yeah, he does Russian. <laughs> he, does, some... he does Rose McGowan. Uh... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, oh. It's incredible. Awesome. I mean, he does everybody. Everybody that's he in does. these stories, he does their voices. <laughs> I mean, I was very so. excited to read it before, but I'm going to have to audiobook yeah. it now. That's... You got to get the audiobook. <laughs> yeah, I, I turned through it, did it in like two days. It's awesome. Oh, nice. Awesome. Well, that's great. What's the name of the book again? It's Catch and Kill. Catch and Kill. Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrell. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically the audiobook. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's the wreck. Awesome. That's great. Um, well, this week I watched uh, Gemini Man, Ang Lee's newest movie, um, starring Will Smith and Will Smith. Um, <laughs> this movie is is bad. This is a vi- this is a bad movie, oh, no. and I absolutely love it. Yes, I absolutely love it. The action in it is some of the coolest action that I have seen in a movie in a long time. Um, this movie, he filmed it in what is it, 120 frames per second. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 3D, and they're not showing that in most of the theaters in the United States. But I, I, I did go to a theater that showed it in um, 60 frames per second in 3D, um, and even that high frame rate just looks amazing. It looks so uh, realistic, and there's a bunch of like chase sequences and stuff like that where it feels more visceral than doing it in real life. It's incredible. Um, Also, the way he shoots action in this movie is so clear, too. I feel like one of the things that hurt me so much about 3D is just that because everything is so crisp and right there in your face, um, a lot of the action just kind of throws you around and you really kind of lose your your grip on what's going on. And he's so still with the way he shoots this and so calm that you are always, always in control of exactly where you're looking. And it is... It is beautiful. It is one of the most beautiful action movies I've seen. Um, Will Smith is, just to give you a brief understanding of what this is, basically Will Smith fights uh, a younger version of, of himself. If you've seen the trailers, that's basically what it is. Um, and I won't go deeper into that, but basically there's, so who else is in this movie? Um, Will Smith, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, speaking Uh-oh. of Scott Pilgrim. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm listening. Uh, she's she's great in this movie she does some action she's a ton of fun she's great Um, in every movie yeah she's she is she's great in every movie um clive owens 
playing um th- you know the traditional bad guy that Clive Owens does. Wow. Um, uh, Benedict Wong, um, who is this is the first movie I think that I've seen him in where they actually really let him be funny. He's a funny guy and he is hilarious in this movie and he is playing he's playing the the funny guy which never happens for him. And in a movie like this, where you also have Will Smith, who's super charming, to let someone else be the funny guy is amazing. So I love a bunch of little pieces about this movie, but you can tell this movie was written in the 90s and hasn't really been updated. Um, (laughs) David Benioff, um, who uh, was a showrunner for Game of Thrones, did a pass on the script, um, which did not clean it up at all. <laughs> um, it's still a bad script, but overall, this movie is a ton of fun. Not every movie has to be good. I agree. I feel strongly <laughs> about that, yeah. I have strong feelings about Ang Lee because it sucks that he's making movies for 20, 25 years in the future, and no one cares right now. Like I know. He's making these movies as on the like spear tip of technology where all of the frame rates and you know the way that he's shooting is just so progressive and he's trying to push the format forward and we're all like, "Nah, I want to see JLo on a stripper pole." And <laughs> you know what? Like honestly that movie was great, so I don't want to shit on it. But <laughs> but it sucks because Ang Lee's such a great filmmaker and all, you know, this film and, and Billy Lynn's halftime walk or whatever yeah. it was called. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody saw them. And if they did, I don't think they had, you know, overwhelmingly positive responses as a whole. And it sucks. You know, it's it's like he's not making movies for the general population anymore. Um, he's making them for like future generations, like future film schools to look back and be like, Oh, yes, during this period, Ang Lee made the, all these films, and no one cared. I know. I feel like he's very interested in the technology that he's working with, um, which is super awesome. I just wish people would, people with talent would also want to work with him and make some good That's scripts. what I was going to so. say. <laughs> my overwhelming feeling about Ang Lee is that his movies are so interesting in the way they're made, and God, I wish they were good, too. Yeah. Are we not? Are we sure that Ang Lee isn't just James Cameron? Like, <laughs> these are the movies he's making while he's making Avatar? Honestly, it feels like it. Like it, it, it did make me excited to see Avatar again. Like watching 3D, that is good, um, was super exciting. So I, I am pumped for the future of kind of what these uh, cinematic masters well, do. You, but you only have to wait um, another decade to see Avatar too. So. <laughs> to write, to wrap up that story that I'm dying to know more about. I, I have a, I have a yep. question. Did, did you see yes, The Hobbit? I did. And I was very upset about it. That's like, watch it. I would love to see these back to back. I wouldn't want to watch The Hobbit again. But I would love to see these back to back and see the difference of just someone who's just shooting it to shoot it and someone who's shooting it intentionally um, in this format to actually make the the shot better. Because Peter Jackson did shoot shoot it in 60 frames per second. Did, or 60? He didn't shoot it in 60 frames. Yeah. Did he? did he shoot it in 48? I can't remember. Was it, it 48? 48. He, sh- he, sh- he shot it in a higher frame rate, but mm-hmm. he didn't actually shoot it differently than he would shooting at 24 frames per right. second. And um, so you and so you get a lot of um, a lot of action that is unclear, and it's just the lighting is bad because of the way he's shooting it. And so um, you get someone who's interested in that technology but not really proficient in it versus what Ang Lee's doing, which is truly out of the ballpark. So I would say cool. see this movie at, at as high definition as you can, but also it's not a good movie. So mm. grain of salt situation. Well, I'm AMCA list, so it's not going to cost me anything but time. And I'm Alamo Drafthouse season pass as of this weekend. So going to go see Ooh. all the movies. Well, Ooh. look at you guys. Then definitely go see yeah. it. My theater was packed and I was at an AMC. And so it's I'm sure it was all A-list people. And 
full theater. Everybody had a blast. Yeah, I just <laughs> so. saw him talking about how he was like talking about how the only correct way to see the movie was 120 frames per second. It's like he doesn't have <sighs> yeah, any interest well. in movies <laughs> under that ever again. And I was, and I, yeah, just, I yeah. just kept thinking about The Hobbit and how much I wanted to die. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll check it out. Well, fear not, you'll have some fun in this movie. Much more fun than The Hobbit. So. <laughs> Low bar. <laughs> I know. Oh, boy. All right, let's move on to our next section, In or Out, where we talk about trailers that just came out and how we feel about them. So let's start off with Doolittle, Robert Downey Jr.'s newest movie, uh, but also, I feel like an older movie. I feel like this movie was shot a long time ago and had a bunch of production issues and mm-hmm. is just now getting released. But uh, this is him as Dr. Doolittle in a maybe kids movie. I can't really tell. Mm. This movie is kind of ridiculous. What do you guys think about it? I have so many thoughts about Doolittle. The main one being, listen, the Welsh accent is very difficult. But what the fuck oh is he doing? Oh, my goodness. Yep. <laughs> it's so It's so bad. It's real bad. Oh, like the, and, and like, I think, he, I think he's trying to do a Valleys accent, which is like one of the most difficult Northern European accents to do, even for like other Welsh people. Wow. Yeah. But like, first of all, why would you, why would you choose that? And. <laughs> Is Dr. Doolittle Welsh? I was wondering that after the fact. Like, is it canon that his character is supposed to, like, why would you not just go, like, do receive pronunciation, do Irish, do Scottish, whatever you feel like you're able to do as Robert Downey Jr.? Don't go for Welsh, man. <laughs> American is what Robert Downey Jr. is capable of doing. Well, well, yes. <laughs> you know he was like, he, in Sherlock Holmes, I did an accent and everyone loved me, so I'm going to try it again. <laughs> did we love the accent, though, in Sherlock Holmes? I love Sherlock Holmes. Or did we tolerate it? Of the accent, oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we, we tolerated the, the accent for the rest of it. Yeah. So this has a plethora of famous people as uh, animals in this movie. The CG looks terrible. Um, Everything about this movie looks bad. So So, I'm out on it. (laughs) um, So the only thing I know about this movie other than watching the trailer is a Reddit post that came out recently about uh, some crew members who worked on the production of this film. Did y'all see this? No. No. Yeah, so some crew members went on uh, to Reddit to talk about how shitty the production was of this film and... They said it was a circus. They said that the, there was no prep time. They said that the director was a maniac, you know, pretty Hollywood stuff. But they said things like they would try, the director would try to set up shots where there would be like CGI ca- like animals and he would give them cu- just a couple of minutes to prep, not very much time at all. And he would like, I don't know, then he would say like, okay, I want the animals in the shot as I'm seeing playback and then he would look at the playback and be like why are the animals there like crazy stuff um just basically like thinking that CG is just like an actor that you can just like put into the shot um and not adjust lighting or uh staging or anything like that um the people who did this reddit post went on and on just about the difficulties of this shoot and uh all I have to say is not great, Bob. I saw the trailer, immediately forgot it. Yeah. So well, I'm out. I cannot wait for this train wreck. <laughs> oh, no, there are so many people. Mm. In There's it. so many who, people. Who's Tom in Holland, it? I didn't look Michael anything Sheen, up. Michael Sheen, Rami Malek, Emma Thompson, Ra- Ralph Fiennes, Marion Cotillard, Camille Nanjiani, Antonio Banderas. Yeah. All, they're, they're all animals. playing CGI characters. They're all playing animals, except for Antonio Banderas, and who plays Michael the bad Sheen guy. Oh, Michael Sheen. Oh, Michael Sheen, yes. Um, um, so, well, yeah, yeah. I'm 
I'm expecting this movie to be very, very bad. Oh, yeah. I'm going to see it <laughs> so. opening night, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The only train wreck that I'm waiting for is Cats. Like, that's really the one that I'm holding out for. Everything else I'm going to let pass me by. Oh, not, gosh. You cannot <laughs> see Cats. Gosh. And I work in theater oh, full yeah. time. <laughs> it's going to be a mess. It is. A, it is. A mess. Christmas is going to be great this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, next movie on the list is Jungle Cruise. So this is based on the Disneyland theme park ride, um, you know, like you base all your good movies on. Um, this stars uh, Emily Blunt um, as a Indiana Jones type who uh, takes a ride with Dwayne Johnson on a, on his riverboat in the jungle to find things. Um, this looks... Uh, Pretty uh, standard for Disney, I guess. I, I'm i in on it based on Emily Blunt and The Rock having that chemistry. I just can't, I can't wait for that. Overall, I do not think this movie actually looks very good, but I'm in on it anyway. I'll see anything with Dwayne Johnson in it. I feel like I've made myself fairly clear about how I feel about the Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so for me, uh, definitely going to be out on this movie. However, it did make a strong case for me, which is Emily Blunt. I mean... She's queer canon since The Devil Wears Prada. She is uh, incredible. And ever since then, you know, see anything that she's in. And the idea that we would get to watch a movie where they, where Emily Blunt and Dwayne The Rock Johnson have, like, romantic chemistry and it's, you know, sparks fly is interesting only to the point that we would get to see her, like, dress him down verbally over and over. I would love to see that and just humiliate him. But everything else... Truly could not care about this mainstream family flick. Um, So it's another out for me. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, on to other mainstream family flicks. Um, Our final movie that we're talking about is Bombshell, which is um, the story of the group of women who took down uh, Fox News head Roger Ailes. Um, So this stars Charlize Theron as Megyn Kelly. Um, Nicole Kidman is Gretchen Carlson. And... um, Margot Robbie as, I don't know this person, Kayla Popisil? I don't know that. I don't know her. But this cast is great. This group uh, who's kind of putting this all together, um, with director uh, Jay Roach and writer Charlie, who is it? Oh, no, Charles Randolph, um, who wrote The Big Short. Um, Jay Roach uh, directed, what did he, I feel like he directed something that I liked. Austin Powers? No. <laughs> did he really? I think he did. Was definitely not that. Did he direct Austin Hell Powers? Yeah. Really? He did uh, one and two. Oh, he did all we, three. Oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah. well, that changes a lot for me. We'll see how this movie goes. I'm out. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm in. I love, oh, okay. like, I love everything <laughs> about this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, uh, Austin Powers, Meet the Fockers, Dinner for Schmucks, and Bombshell. Uh, so <laughs> Academy Award winning Bombshell. Here's the deal. I've watched... Just the trailer for Bombshell upwards of 20 times, Um, specifically the one that came out like two days ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to give a shout out to whatever editor and whatever like marketing team put that together because it is a perfect trailer. It is incredible. The haunting like acapella, like, like choir girls at the beginning that is like haunting but alluring. And then the use of Billie Eilish's bad guy is the perfect use of that song. <laughs> I was uh, I was blown away, and I've watched it so many times. I think that Margot Robbie may be the most, one of the most inter- interesting actresses of her generation, and, uh, you know, Nicole Kidman and Charlize Theron don't disappoint, so 
it's gonna be incredible. I can't I can't wait. Yeah, everyone in this is amazing. Like everyone in it. Like obviously <laughs> the main three, but most yeah. John Lithgow and Kate McKinnon and Connie Britton and Mark Duplass and Rob Delaney and like everyone in it is amazing. Yeah. Uh, it's so stacked. Yeah, this I, I didn't know this really movie is. existed until you put it on the list. And now it's like possibly my most oh, anticipated man. movie. It looks so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's and I it, speaking of, you know, the director of Austin Powers, I love it when people do one thing for like 30 <laughs> years and then they're like, what if I took myself seriously for one second? It's like the, it's always <laughs> the best. Well, it's almost oh, always yeah. the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're, we're not going to talk about that <laughs> in 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Oh man. Okay. Well, that's bombshell. Sounds like we're all in on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in that case, are we all ready to talk about Joker? Smile. Though your heart is aching. Smile. Even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by if you smile Through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun come shining through for you. Okay, so Joker uh, is obviously the greatest enemy of Batman, um, has had a long, enduring legacy performed by many, many great actors, um, and now Todd Phillips, the director of Old School and the Hangover movies, decides he wants to take a crack at it because comedy, because you can't do comedy anymore, apparently. So I would love to hear what you guys think about cool. it. Cool. I really hate this movie. I hated <laughs> it. It made, it made me, I, yeah, I just, I didn't like a single second of it. Wow. Yeah. I, I felt like, yeah, Conversation. I can't wait. This is going to be so fun. Uh, um, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I can't, there's nothing I can say about the Joker that other people have not already said several times. Right. Um, I felt like I was watching Taxi Driver again. I felt like I was watching Kings of Comedy, but not as good as either of those. Um, okay, let's let's start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> I think that it was probably a coincidence that this movie came out exactly one week before World Mental Health Day. Um, but that but that made me very uncomfortable. Ooh. Um, no, There's no, no way I, that, they yeah, knew that. absolutely. I am not in any way saying that that yeah. was a purposeful choice. I didn't. I didn't know when it was <laughs> until the day before it was happening. So there's no way I think they knew. It, it's not good that it happened. Um, I I think it has a lot of political things to say and then doesn't. Um, I am very uncomfortable with its alignment with working class struggles with one of the most famous villains in the history of fiction. Uh, and yeah, I just I don't know. I I just the whole time I I felt like I felt like it was someone who wanted to pretend to say something important that's that's how it made me feel mm, interesting so well, let's real quick we're gonna work our way up the ladder <laughs> so i'm gonna go next <laughs> um because i think i'd probably fall right in the middle of you guys um of just that like i i didn't love it um but i also didn't hate it as much as i thought i could possibly hate it um i know there was a lot of talk going on about this movie before it came out um and so i muted everything on twitter i didn't nice. hear anybody talk about it i didn't listen to anything just because yeah. i knew that would really influence my opinion of it mm. um and so i went in actually completely fresh other than the fact that i knew that people were talking about it i didn't know in what way um and so going in clean i think was really great yeah. and um, I got to I got to see I think a lot of the very good things about it. I think 
from a filmmaking perspective, I think Todd Phillips actually does a really good job of shooting this movie. I, agree. I think it's a very pretty movie. Um, I I think I think a lot of my qualms are kind of what Josh said is just that it's not saying anything important um, or trying to say anything, or if it is trying to say something, none of that is hitting. Um, Obviously, a million things to talk about in spoilers about what specifically those things are. But I think in general, to me, it feels like a first-time screenwriter um, got together with a very talented cinematographer, um, but not someone who was interested in actually directing a movie. Um, and so there's a, it's, there's a lot of interesting things about it that add up to nothing, in my opinion. So I don't, mm. I don't hate it, but I also didn't feel like it was interesting enough to have a huge opinion on. The, the bad screenwriter, good cinematographer is a really good way yeah. of describing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mike, I, I think I'm going to come from a completely different vantage point from the either of y'all um most specifically like i've never i really haven't seen any of the comic book movies like i mean i've seen black panther um but i didn't see any of the avengers i didn't see any of the spinoffs i didn't see any of the um any of that stuff really have Mm -hmm. stayed away from all of these superhero movies um and have kind of don't i mean i I hate to take a Martin Scorsese stance oh. on this, but <laughs> I, I I classically have stayed away from those, not because uh, I think they're bad. I just that they don't do anything for me. And so coming at this film from a like a cinematically historic standpoint, um, with the context that it is in the like the superhero world, I think that it was doing something incredible, um, which is using its context to then make statements about the culture in which this universe lives. Um, You know, using Taxi Driver and the King King of Comedy, but putting that in the cinematic universe of superheroes where violence isn't really real, I think helps it have this really important statement on violence that we can get to uh, in spoilers. But what's difficult is that this movie is doing everything opposite what the audience who will come to see it wants. And I think that's why it's getting some pushback from people. Um, People who come to see this have name recognition. They're like, oh, Joker, superhero movie, so I'm going to get, you know, bam, bam, and we're going to get, you know, cool people getting kicked, and that means they die, but not really because we don't see any blood or any repercussions. And, you know, we're going to feel good, we're going to feel bad for a second, and then it's all going to be okay in the end. And I think what this film does is it's an examination of actual violence and an examination of actual discomfort, which is really uh, like, I can't think of another superhero movie that does that. Um, And it tries to do something new, which maybe makes it just like the goth kid in the back of the classroom who just doesn't want to participate. But I think that it was really a really important film to introduce into superheroes movies because they're overrun and they're rampant and they all do the same thing. So this one tried to do something different. And I think that's a worthwhile pursuit. I think what's interesting is a lot of the Marvel movies, um, when you hear the directors talk about them, um, you hear them say like, oh, we're actually trying to make a political thriller. Like this is going to be our, you know, uh, Three Days of the Condor movie. Or they're like, this is going to be like a John Hughes movie. And mm. they're not. Like they're, <laughs> no. like they're, they're never that. They're like just a Marvel turn on a, you know, on a teenage movie or a Marvel turn on, you know, 
something with political elements. And, but you, you're never like, oh, this reminded me of Three Days of the Condor or like this reminded me of The Breakfast Club. And so this, I think, goes the opposite direction of almost too slavishly tying to its um, influences um, mm. of Martin Scorsese. And I think I think I am interested in that in comic book movies of, of you know, moving that direction and trying out new things. Like Marvel has its set. It's, it's doing its thing. It's making a lot of money and it's succeeding and people like those movies. And I think this is actually a really good idea for DC to kind of branch out and you don't have to do exactly what Mar- Marvel's doing. You can kind of have these one-off, very specific tone-driven movies. Um, mm. that, And I think that's a great idea. I don't think this one hit completely. I think because of empathy. I actually rewatched Taxi Driver today um, to, <laughs> to talk mm. about this, but just because, yeah. like, I, I remember liking Taxi Driver, and I remember feeling more in tune with um, Robert De Niro's character in that movie, and I'm not sure why. And in rewatching it, what I was thinking was, even if I don't like him, or there are parts of him that I really dislike, I still have empathy for him. And yeah. I think one of the hard things in this movie is you don't have empathy for the for the Joker or you root for him. And I don't think those should be the only two options. Mm. I think there should be a place in the middle where you aren't on his side, but you still have empathy for what that character is going through. And right. I think that's something that I missed from, from the Joker movie. So there's two fundamental differences between Taxi Driver and Joker that I think are really stand out. Um, one, Pauline Kale, I went back and read her review of Taxi Driver, and most of it basically applies to the Joker as well, except for one main thing, which is in Taxi Driver, Robert De Niro is hot, and in Joker, Joaquin Phoenix is not. <laughs> and I think that it really says something about having your lead actor, if they are insane, if they are attractive to look at, it somehow helps you empathize more. Um, the second thing I think is that in Taxi Driver, you know, disregarding the, the attempted, you know, homicide of the political candidate, um, what, you know, Travis Bickle ends up doing is murdering a bunch of pimps, a bunch of quote unquote bad people helping clean up the streets. And the difference in Joker is that the people that he kills are are just people. They're just random people. They're not bad people, quote unquote. And so this diff, this fundamental difference of, oh, Travis Bickle is a hot guy who's trying to do the right thing versus... Arthur Fleck, who is an unattractive guy just doing random violence. I think it's it's tough. It's tough to make the empathy, sympathy or even empathy go even even further, if that makes any sense. That's interesting because I, I find myself in the opposite situation where I am far more likely to empathize with Arthur Fleck than I am with Travis Bickle. Um, and, and I also, mm, I don't know that I can until we get to spoilers, but I want to talk about what you said about the people he kills just being people too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about that. I think the, the last thing I'll say about the taxi driver thing is that to, to me, it felt like, like nightcrawler is a movie that felt like it was inspired by that. Someone saw Mm. taxi driver and was inspired by it. Right. And yes. And Joker felt to me like a movie where someone saw taxi driver and wanted to prove to me that they had seen taxi driver. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Oh man! It's like somebody. It's like uh, someone submitting their turn paper and yeah, turning exactly. it in flags it as like ninety percent copyrighted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, wait, what? No, this is different. Like it's Arthur, is in not this one. Travis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the influence is totally right there. Um, and you know, I don't know. I I think there's. I'm trying to remember other instances where 
people have gone this far, you know, the extreme example is Gus Van Sant remaking Psycho shot for shot. <laughs> that didn't go over well. And I'm trying to yeah. remember situations where something that pays this much homage to something goes well. I can't, I don't know. I don't know if we as a culture like that. I don't know if we respond well to it. I feel like we, we want the same but different but the same. We, we want people yeah. to at least pretend like they're being original. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'll have to think oh, more about yeah. that. And obviously yeah. everyone's going to react to that, those comparisons differently based on their relationship to Taxi Driver and, you know. Mm-hmm. Totally. All right. Well, in that case, let's dive into the spoilers. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. No. Cracking gas. Spoilers. Remember, you wanted this. So I think we can use this topic to kind of like branch into spoilers. But for me, one of the main things that I walked away from the movie thinking about is how we want violence, but we don't want it like that. And what I mean by that is this is a comic book movie, but it's not. And it's like super realistic. And I feel like people, you know, the, the violence in it is super shocking, whether it's, you know, throat slashes or eyeball stabs I think at one point or you know really realistic gun shootings with blood spurting everywhere um it's really tough to watch and I feel like a lot of people are like oh that's too much I don't want to see that and it's like no you do because the kill count in Marvel movies is insane like the amount of people who die in those movies is nuts but the thing is they don't actually die it's not actually death because we don't get the repercussions and the consequences of those deaths we don't have to sit with it the way this movie makes us sit with it you know and so i thought it was really interesting to in a culture of superhero movies where everyone dies but no one pays a price this movie drops in and says here's the price that none of you guys are acknowledging and i think that's i think that's kind of necessary you know in a in a landscape where these movies make the most money for someone to say, hey, this actually isn't real, you know, I mean, and everyone knows that from the beginning, you know, they're comic book and superheroes and all that stuff. But I think I think that we're lying to ourselves a little bit with all these superhero movies. And this film kind of tried to bring us back down to reality a little bit, which isn't fun, but I think it's worthwhile. I think that's something that you get in the comics as well as you have different kinds of um I guess different levels of violence. You have very kind of playful, very, you know, bloodless violence in certain comic books. And then you have certain writers and artists who really want to go deep and really want to get gritty with it. And I think this is the first time that we've seen that in the movie world is being able to, you know, have that differential, that differentiator in a comic book movie, um, which I think is important. And I definitely want that to continue. I just think the violence didn't say anything, or maybe I just didn't get what it was trying to say, but I felt like those scenes were supposed to be meaningful in a certain way. So specifically the, um, just the way the violence builds, I think is important, but to me, it didn't build up to a meaning. Um, at the end when he shoots Robert De Niro, I was under the imp- I was never under the impression that he was going to kill himself. At the very beginning, kind of he has that thing where he's like, you know, he'll shoot himself on stage. That's that's the kind of vibe you get at the beginning, and then once the violence kind of, um, you know, gets bigger, I never thought he was going to kill himself on stage. I always assumed he was going after Robert De Niro because he was just going after people who had wronged him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, and I wasn't necessarily clear on what they were trying to say with that or what they wanted out of that. Was that supposed to be a twist? Was that supposed to be a surprise? Because he has this, you know, mentality that he kind of like is, or not, not mentality. He has this kind of vibe where it's like, I'm not involved in the politics of any of this stuff. But then he has a manifesto that he, you know, spills on stage before he shoots Robert De Niro. And so there's that kind of mix of tones as to what it is, what it is that we're actually, what, what is behind the violence. Um, I never felt like we really got a clear shot at what they were trying to say with that. Yeah, it, it feels like, if it feels like things are happening out of order to me. Because if we see the scene at the end where all the people are surrounding him and like, you know, applauding him and cheering for him and all that stuff before he does the manifesto thing, then it becomes clear that, you know, he's, he's finally found what he always wanted, which was validation and recognition. And so now he'll just do whatever that group yeah. says, because like, that's the thing that's working. Right. But it happens out. Of, it happens in the wrong order. He joins them and then he finds out that they like, you know what I mean? And it, it feels very disconnected to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I thought this film did some stuff on s several deep levels in terms of putting us into the psychology of this bad person, this insane person. You know, we get the the uh, daydreams that he is dating or in a relationship with the the neighbor down the hall when I mean, it turns out to not be real. Um, but more importantly, I think, is the moments that he starts acting violently and hurting people, his life gets be gets better. Like, for example, when he strangles his mom and uh, kills her, sun is shining through the window and light music starts playing. Um, and you'll notice this every time he commits an act of violence against somebody, whether it's the people in the subway or uh, his coworker. Afterwards, he gets, it seems like he's more, he has more vitality and he's like more alive. And I think that's why he is so um he's almost a different person when he goes on the stage with Robert De Niro he's so articulate and he's so like crazily charismatic and i think it's because it's showing that for this character violence actually doesn't make him better but it makes him more alive and i think that's what this film is trying to do the film is trying to give the you know the backstory to a villain and to put us in the headspace of that character um, which I thought was really, uh, I thought they did it in a, a pretty good way. Um, it's not comfortable is the thing. It's, an, it's not, you know, it's not comfortable to, um, to see these things happen. But the main thing I kept thinking when I was watching this movie was that that phrase on Twitter that a lot of journalists use retweets are not endorsements. That's what I felt about this film, which is this film has us empathize with this character, but not justify any of his actions. Like we watch these things happen and maybe this is just my like altruistic reading of the film, but I was like, never not one act of violence. Did he do that? Did I say, yeah, you should have done that. Um, and I think that that was the line that they were trying to walk, which maybe people, and I'm, I'd be curious to hear what y'all think, um, think differently. But I, I thought that it was a really deft move to show all of these things and to show that his psychology while still allow the audience to be like, no, that is bad. You are still bad. I don't know. What do y'all think? I, I think the fact that his first victims are rich elites who we are introduced to harassing a woman on the subway 
says a lot about how we're supposed to feel mm. about the murders. And then like, singing like, Sondheim. Yeah. So. Which, Clockwork Orange. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of 70s movies. Mm. Uh, um, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, while I agree that murdering someone is not the correct response to anything. <laughs> they didn't. I didn't see the end of that sentence coming. Yeah. 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 As your lawyer. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, a, there's no one in the movie he murders that I'm like, oh, that dude ruled. Everyone kind of sucked. It's like there is currently an, um, an embroiling class war. And, you know, the working class sentiment against the rich is at a boiling point that we haven't seen in a long time. And so we have rich people doing something that is currently in the spotlight and then we have them killed. Not for that, but we do have them killed. And then we have a guy who, you know, gives someone who's not supposed to have a gun a gun and then lies about it and gets him fired. And, like, that's a bad person. Mm. And it's all these things that are, like, very active in the political discourse right now, right? The, the, the class struggle of the, of the working poor and the Me Too movement and uh, gun rights and, you know, mm. disarmament and that kind of thing. And, like, um, media evisceration of normal people. Like, everyone, that's, those are all things that are happening right now. And so to not take a stand on any of them... But to be like, look at this guy. He killed all those people that society currently hates. Just feels so dirty to me. Especially mm. considering he's portrayed as mentally yeah. ill. And mentally ill people are far more likely to be the victim of crimes than the aggressor in, in a crime. Mm. Um, and so to have the only two mentally ill people in the movie both be aggressors on top of all that just feels very weird and gross to me. Mm. Yeah, that's a yeah, good I, point. I wish it had said more about mental illness because it, it, it really leans on that pretty heavily throughout the movie of just that he is mentally ill and that he's basically incapable of functioning in society because of this mental illness. And it's, and we, we see that multiple times of just how much this hurts his social interactions and, you know, even, I mean, especially his comedy, like how, like how this just doesn't work. His life as he wants it doesn't work because of his mental illness. And then we just say, yeah. right, but violence fixed that. Like, there's not an actual addressing of the issue. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I, you know, agreed with or, or that I was that the filmmakers wanted me to agree with his violent acts at all. I think they, they didn't, and I think I didn't come out of it that feeling that way. But it just didn't do anything. It was just he is mentally ill, and he commits these violent acts, and you can't keep them separate. But they, they do their best to not intersect those at all, which is a very weird thing to do. Um, and I think for me, it all comes back to the Zazie Beetz character of just how, from the start, we're saying this guy cannot function in a normal relationship in any way, shape, or form. He has a weird relationship with his mother. He has a weird relationship with his coworkers. He can't even talk to somebody on the bus. And then it's like, ah, but he gets this girlfriend. And so from the start, I was like, either this is just super poorly written or this relationship isn't real. This is all in his head. <laughs> right, right. And so then when it turns out, guess what? It is in his head. Um, I think that made a lot of sense. But also it didn't show us where, like, they, again, they didn't do anything with that relationship of he breaks into her. Like, from her perspective, he breaks into her house <laughs> acting like this is super normal. Um, mm -hmm. She's super scared. And we don't get any kind of resolution to that. It's just that was a big reveal. And then we move on. Did he right. kill her? 
We don't know. Right. That, and, I mean, having having a, you know, alone, you know, socially awkward person uh, murder a woman who spurns her his advances or whatever is something that happens yeah. all the time. And again, it wasn't really addressed at all, if that's actually what happened. We just She just never shows up again for the rest of the movie well, once and we it's find interesting, out that twist, I think, which I is think very of, weird. Mm. I agree that I don't think they intended us to like in, enjoy or be like, yay, Joker murdered all those people. But but I also, I subscribe to Death of the Author as a, like a literary concept, which I guess the difference between authorial intent, which is like what, what they meant is what matters, um, where Death of the Author is Roland Barthes, um, the idea that meaning doesn't exist when you create it, exists when it's consumed. Um, and so like it doesn't matter what mm, you're trying yeah. to say if this many people, like, it's, it's what is perceived is the important thing. Um, Intention yeah. isn't yeah. as uh, important as impact. Right, right. Yeah. If, if, if you were trying to make this movie to where you were against the Joker the whole time, and then in the theater, everybody cheers when he kills Robert De Niro. Yeah, you, you did a bad job. failed, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. And that happened in my in my theater. There were a couple people who cheered when he killed Same. Robert De Niro. And that scared me, actually, that also for happened a second. I was just like, hang on, what's yeah. going on here? I do Why think- is this happening? I think yeah. we definitely need to discuss the fact that this film, from start to finish, makes you yeah. the experience is unsettling, like deeply unsettling, deeply discomforting. Um, and I honestly, um, as I was sitting in that theater, I kept clocking everybody who was standing up, everyone who was making sudden movements in case there was going to be some sort of violence, which is a very strange experience to have, and I haven't had that in a long time. Um, but you're right, the 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 scene where he's sitting in um, his perceived girlfriend's apartment is so deeply unnerving. Um, it reminded me of, um, you know, Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men when he goes and visits uh, Josh Brolin's mm. wife. Yeah. Um, and I think these two films deal in, they both are deeply unsettling, but one is and feels like it stands the test of time and the other one feels like it wants to stand the test of time. Um, and I'd be curious to think, I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Like, why does, you know, something like No Country for Old Men, where uh, it's super violent and it's, you know, all, empathetic in some ways to its uh, villain, feels like it's a worthwhile piece of, of cinematic history, whereas the Joker, you know, more or less feels like it's trying to be? What do y'all think? Yeah. I think because we understand the character more. Um, in No Country for Old Men, Javier Bardem's character, we get less time with him than we do with the Joker in this movie. But each interaction that he has shows us more about what what kind of person he is. And it just continues. It, like we, we've right from the start, we establish it. And then it continues to validate um, our opinion of him and how he feels. And so at the end, when you get this super ambiguous, you know, he leaves the house, um, we know what happened. Like we know exactly what happened. He, we don't see him flip the coin. We don't. We don't know anything that happened. But we we know what happened because we know who that character is. And I think that's what I didn't get from this character. Is at the end, I still don't know who the Joker is. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think the film. I think Joker was, the film tries and succeeds in telling you and how every area of this man's life failed him like that's what the whole first hour is trying to do is like oh nature failed him nurture failed him biology failed him society failed him you know all of these different ways and 
what he then does, I guess what we're trained to believe is then that this character will find its way to overcome that and we get to cheer on this person, but that doesn't happen. And I wonder if that's why, you know, our narrative patterns that we've been taught didn't lead, this film didn't lead us to that conclusion. Um, or, you know, in a scary way, maybe it did for some people where he, the way that they see that he overcame was he was like, yeah, he took control of his own destiny or whatever, which is a scary interpretation. I don't know. I think the reason that this movie doesn't feel good to me and No Country for Old Men did is that No Country for Old Men, um, Anton Chigurh has a foil. You know, Tommy Lee Jones is is his perfect mm. foil. You know, they're both people right. who have been left out by society. And That's a really good point. Yeah. Who has gone the worst way possible about it and the other who is trying his hardest not to. And so we get to see the two different viewpoints. And that's why every other version of the Joker in the history of any media has done a better job than this. Because that's the, that's what the Joker exists <laughs> to be is Batman if he lets go. Because Batman's an insane person. He dresses up mm, like yeah. an animal and beats people up because his mommy and daddy are <laughs> totally. seven. Like totally. that's that's not nor that's not normal. He's right. you know, he's a little unhinged. And so if he lets go of the few things that keep him grounded, like Alfred and, you know, Dick Grayson and the other people around him in certain versions, that this is who he becomes. And so to not have that foil for the Joker is just like this is what happens when you go crazy. Yeah, it almost seems like the film is in a codependent relationship with its audience. Like, because it's such a precise character study of this guy where we watch the way that he bends over lockers and the way that he, you know, stands and smiles as his boss chews him out. Like, we are so in the head and present for this guy's journey um, that... Are, I don't know, are, is the audience the foil? And that's why it feels bad, you know, not narratively, but like in this exchange of this this film and this medium, like are we his participant? Are we the one who keeps saying, no, 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 don't do that? And he does it anyway. And that's why it feels Maybe. bad. I don't know. But I mean, it feels like society is supposed to be the foil. Like like in the movie, it's supposed to be, yeah. you know, he, he if he's if he's our, you know, protagonist, society in general is the antagonist. It's just that that I, I didn't feel like it was specific enough for that. To, I mean, you you can have society be the antagonist you, for sure. Right. Just the, I, you you know, the norms entirely, of the world. But it didn't feel like that came across foil, clearly. You have to be entirely the same except for one defining trait. You know, it's it's the it's the singular difference mm. that makes you know, it's all the similarities that makes the difference stand out. It's why like Hamlet and Laertes are such a good job is because like the yeah. literal only difference between those characters is that one of them, the dad got murdered. And so it's like, and so that's, you see them butt heads over <laughs> and over and that's, it just draws back to that. Like, you know, nothing has gone wrong for this character. So he's this way. And that's how this character would be if that's his circumstances. Yeah. I heard another reason why taxi driver works so well is that the city is not, you know, Gotham, which stands in for yeah. America, it's New York in the 70s. Like, the the film takes place in a time and place where the rest of the country kind of was like, yeah, that yeah. place is gross. Um, <laughs> that's why it worked. Yeah. Whereas Gotham does kind of feel like, because of all the things that you were saying about how it feels like, you know, this moment, it, Gotham does feel like a stand-in for America right now. And it's difficult to be like, oh, well, that place sucks and is the foil and... Um, you know, in Pauline Kael's review of Taxi Driver, I believe it was her, at the end, she's like, the main, one of the main things you're left with is that the city is worse than Travis Bickle is. And 
the Joker kind of try to make that tries to make that point, but it's tough when Gotham stands in for the United States. Yeah, it's like too general. A, a, couple, yeah. a couple of things about yeah. like being someone who's been reading comics as long as I have, um, and and coming into this movie, I felt like. I think I think Ben, you were talking earlier about how it's like it's a it's a new thing to add to this comic movies thing, and to an extent, I I agree, and I really like, mm-hmm. I really like that this movie happened. I want to be very clear about that. Like, I'm glad it got made because I want more experimental stuff to happen in this in this kind of pocket of cinema. I think that's really interesting. Um, but my mm-hmm. my issue with the movie. This is going to feel like a huge digression. I promise I have a point. I love pro wrestling. I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. <laughs> and this movie feels to me like when UFC fans tell me that wrestling isn't real. Yeah, I know wrestling's mm. not real. One of the most famous characters is an undead wizard who drags people to hell then buries them alive. Like, I know that's not real, my man. I'm, I'm watching it because <laughs> it's a fun way to experience breadth of human emotion without having to feel intense feelings that I have to feel every day. And so to, to walk into mm. the Joker, I, I feel like they're being like, yeah, all that violence in, in superhero movies, like violence is real. It's like, yeah, no one thinks that it's not. We're existing in this space because it's a safe, fun place to explore these ideas in a not, horrifically intense way um and so yeah and so it feels it feels slightly intrusive and and i don't i don't mean that in a like gatekeepy way where like superheroes are for people who've been reading comics for forever and no one can but it i've i've read a lot about how people are are mad at at joker the movie because they expected it to be a normal comic book movie and it wasn't and i Mm -hmm. can say with great certainty, I don't think almost anyone walked into this movie not thinking that's a psychopath clown and it's rated R. It's probably going to be like Iron Man 2. And I, I feel like I've been <laughs> preached at a lot about how I don't... how violent comics are. And it's like, yeah, well, we're we're playing by different rules in that universe. It's like being mad at a soap opera for not being Breaking Bad. It's like not the same thing at all. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about that because it's like this movie is trying to bring superhero movies down to earth and ground them so hard. But in doing that, like, does that change the rules? Because obviously he's yeah. a fictional character in a fictional world, but you're trying to make it play by the rules of our world. And, here, and, and, it, doesn't, and it doesn't work for a lot of reasons. And the main one being that in... In Batman, let's take the comics, for example. The Joker's been around for a long time. He's been a character in comics for a long time, and Batman's never mm-hmm. killed him. It is, it, it is a fact that the Joker will never stop being evil because that's a narrative necessity. Mm-hmm. So in that world, the only correct response is to finish him in some way. That's not a moral position you can take in the real world, in my opinion. I, I don't think that life is ever irredeemable. But it it definitively is in this mm-hmm. fictional universe, and so to hyper to go to hyper violence instead of comic book violence with it can create this really really weird discord where the Joker is literally a mass murderer, mm. like on on a very intense terrorism scale, but 
No one will just execute him, which feels very, it's very dis- disjointed. It's like, yeah, kind of like like t- putting guns into Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and we're all like, wait, what? Hold on. Um, n- n- no, I know what you mean. That's like, that That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it does definitely feel like this film was antagonistic from the jump. It's like, we're making this film to piss people off. Um, and, you know... That's, the, sure. you know, provocateurs have been artists for centuries, and that's, that's a, a way that you can be. Um, for me, this film feels like it was imagined with other films or subsequent stories already in the works. Like, that's how it felt to me, and I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they've said it's a standalone piece, but it feels like, you know, that this is leading to us then understanding Gotham when Batman comes around in a different way. Um it's, but I don't it's know standalone. if that's the case. Do you all know anything about? They've been very clear anything? that like there's no sequels. It it's not oh. part of any universe. This exists all on its own, which is I think one of the reasons that makes me feel so weird about it. Yeah, I mean, wow. we'll see. But that everything they've said has suggested that's the yeah. Best. It yeah. just I mean, it just feels like a bad person who's like then at the end like in this sea of badness, you know, and like it kind of yeah. it kind of feels like evil wins if you make this the last the last piece yeah. of the puzzle, which. You know, again, if this is a thought experiment, introducing that into comic book, you know, comic book and superhero movies where good always wins, it's interesting. It's different. Um, yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing that's really interesting is that um, I've been, you know, I, I've been reading Batman comics for a long time and none of my favorites are canonical. You know, the good ones are like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. Mm. That's not, if you read the sequential books that have been coming out since the 30s, it's not in there. That's not it's a standalone thing that exists in a mm-hmm. different universe and year one and Arkham Asylum and mm. all, all of these like quintessential, the killing joke, which is another Joker Orange story. None of I those was, exist. Yeah. In I was going to ask universe timeline of the, the Batman comics. They're all standalone stories written by an author and released into the world as their own pocket thing. And that's a thing that DC has been doing a really good job of since I've been reading starting in the early nineties. And so that's one of the reasons that I was so excited about this movie and that I am still excited about it, even though I hated it so much, <laughs> is that like that. Yeah, this is this is what that is. It's a little standalone. You know, thing. <laughs> they keep making their bad Justice League movies. But also we can get these standalone things that don't have to lean on anything else mm-hmm. and be more experimental. And when they're experimental is really when DC has always been at its best. And, you know, there are some visual shots that are really excellent. You know, like when he stands up on the car at the end and he paints the smile on his face with his own blood is mm-hmm. a really great shot. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it's and it's moments like that where we're bending bending the story a little bit and like experiencing the things, you know, in a slightly different way that the movie really does a great job. Um, and then every once in a while it's like, look, Bruce Wayne's parents got murdered and the, he grabs the pearls and they break because we legally have to do that. in Every <laughs> Batman story now, That's just because Frank Miller drew it once. It's That's like so the funny. eighth time that we've seen that in the movie. I laughed out loud. <laughs> I really I did think we were going to. I thought we were going to get away with that—a Batman movie that didn't have that in no it. No pearls. They, they still, <laughs> they still shoved it in there. So I was—I'll yeah. say I was relieved. I was certain that when he was confronting Thomas Wayne at the theater earlier in the movie, that it was going to oh, yeah. turn out he was the one that killed them, and I was very upset about that. That was that. Yeah. That it. Yeah. I mean, but that this whole movie is simmering. You know, you don't. Yeah. And I think sure. something that we haven't even mentioned, and it kind of goes without saying, but Joaquin Phoenix's performance is incredible. Like he did yes. such a great job. job yes. You know? Agreed. And it's like it's so tough 
And I'd be interested to hear what y'all think because the discourse around Joaquin Phoenix is really interesting in that I feel like he's one of the most incredible actors of his generation. And yet there's this like tinge of not liking him for some reason. Like I feel like when De Niro did Taxi Driver, people were like Scorsese's the next it boy and De Niro is our next macho man. You know, like people really responded to both of them. But in this film, People are pissed off at Todd Phillips, and I feel like people are indifferent about Joaquin Phoenix. What do you any thoughts on that? I think I think Joaquin Phoenix is one of the one of the best actors of his generation for sure. I don't think there's much question to be had in that, and I think most of the artistic community would either agree with that or not violently disagree right. with it. Um, but I think as far as the like movie going public goes, there is a desire in recent years the last 10, let's say, probably a little longer than that, to know everything possible about movie stars. Yeah. Chris Pratt and, like, Ryan Gosling and, like, you know, Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman are a really good... Like, mm. I think they're both really fabulous actors. They're very present on social media. Mm-hmm. Right? They're very open about their lives. And Joaquin Phoenix is not. Right. And I think <laughs> that rubs people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But right. I also think, as someone who has been acting professionally for like 10 years, the more you know about someone, the Mm -hmm. less likely they are to convince you they're not that person. So a lot of what makes Joaquin Phoenix so impactful as an actor, I mean, he's very good, first of all, that's important, but also like you don't have anything, he doesn't have to cover up who he really is first. He doesn't have to wash out his real face to put the new one on because you don't know enough about him to have a preconceived notion. But this is Joaquin Phoenix's most popular movie, right? Like, he doesn't do oh, totally. starring, like, I mean, big movies. I mean, where he's the lead, yeah. I mean, I would, I yeah, would yeah. think back to, like, Gladiator, maybe. Oh, yeah, for sure. That yeah. and, like, Signs and stuff. But, like, like his leading stuff is very, he takes it on the smaller scale. I mean, as small as, like, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson and stuff like that. Like, he's still working with, like, big names and everything, but right. not he's not doing blockbusters. I think this is really his only starring blockbuster. Yeah. I forgot to bring this up earlier, but uh, just a quick side note on the film. It Joaquin Phoenix has reminded me, you know, recently, it, it, the films that he's done recently have been so interesting. When you think back to this, and then you think back to last year's uh, You Were Never Really Here that he did with Lynn Ramsey, um, which was also a taxi driver ripoff. Um, it's there were so many different similarity differences and similarities to these two films, but the idea that Joaquin Phoenix is our like resident crazy person is interesting to me because he's like I don't know if he seems crazy, but he keeps getting these roles where he's kind of like a psychopath. That's true. Uh, but I couldn't stop thinking about. You have to be a little that. bit crazy to make a mockumentary with Casey Affleck. <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Is that that one is you're never really here is kind of a taxi driver um, remake, but I think in a much more interesting way. I think I think like when you come in with something to say, um, besides just I want to make a gritty taxi driver remake, like I think there opens up a bunch of new opportunities for you um, as a filmmaker, and I think that's what Lynn Ramsey did with that movie, as opposed to what Todd Phillips did here, which was just. I want to make a Joker movie. Right. Lynn Ramsey, like her films are art and they do come from such a specific place. Whereas it feels like Joker was like, we still want to stay in the mainstream ballpark. We just want to do something different, which 
you know, it's good, but it doesn't make it art, I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I, I think I just wish that Joker had led the conceptualization, conceptualization of the movie. Uh, it, it feels a little bit like it's a pastiche on top of a movie that was already made um, in a, in a mm, yeah. way to like get comic book crowd to come see it. Because if this was the exact same movie, but it wasn't the Joker... I th- I think it would have maybe maybe a third of the box office that it does, and so it feels oh, a little yeah. bit cynical. For sure, totally. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. I do think it's really interesting that um, you know, I guess maybe a week apart, maybe on the same day, the Joker came out. Um, the comedian in the film Gary Goldman released his stand-up special, uh, which is all about. It's called the Great Depression, and it's all about mental health issues um and it's completely unrelated but he was in like a a spiral when he shot the scenes for the joker in this great depression that he was in um and i don't know what is that what are the what are the phrases kismet uh coincidence i don't know but i like (laughs) i like that i like gary goldman yeah Yeah. anyway complete yeah i'll have to check out his special it's really good you should you should you guys should watch it good well, guys, this was actually a lot of fun talking to you guys about this. I, I really enjoyed this. Even yeah, though I time. had very little to say about this movie because I was I feel like I was very neutral in the middle about it. Um, yeah. I, I really think it, it, it makes for a great discussion. Um, and I think I'm excited for more of these types sure. of movies to happen in the future. Totally. Thanks for, so, give, thanks for giving yeah. us runway to, to have this convo. I enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Well, as we wrap up... Where can we find you guys on the internet? You can find me at BenWeaver27 on Twitter and Instagram and Marco Polo and eBay. And eBay. Sell them stuff. Yeah. Love it. Um, I am yeah. Professor underscore Crow on Twitter, <laughs> and that's my only remaining social media. <laughs> Love it. I'm everywhere at Lucas and Stuff. Um, you can find me on Venmo if you want to send me some money. Um, I don't know what, what else are we pitching here. <laughs> My address is, <laughs> got uh, eBay, got Venmo, uh, all of it. Social yeah, security number. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. All right. It was great talking to you guys. See ya. Yeah. Thanks for having. Me. Thanks. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon. Okay. That's it. Go home. Yeah. Moving along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. 